Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? The team from Louisiana built this little stage extension, so I feel even closer to you. Some of you up front are a little closer to the spit zone, so I apologize. If you haven't yet already, let me invite you to open your Bibles to the passage that was just read aloud to us, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. If you got one of those handouts this morning, it says verses 15, and I want to confess that to you one another in our mistakes, and that uh, Stephanie has been out of town the last four or five days, a little distracted, I'm tired, I feel like I've had a voice in my mind this week accusing me uh, of not, not being good enough, not being a good Christian, not being a genuine Christian, not demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. Um, so all that to say, if I'm a little scattered this morning, um, I just, I'm going to rely a little bit more on your feedback. And I'm a little bit closer to you, too, so I can see uh, your faces. We got these nice LED daylight bulbs in. So you guys in the back, I can see your eyes now. (laughs) There is no longer a safe space in the room. Uh, Well, my name is Daniel, uh, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. We're continuing our study through the book of Galatians, and this is the 14th week we've been in the book. Uh, We've got two more weeks to go. And if you haven't been with us up to this point, let me just recap where we've been to catch you up to speed. Uh, Paul wrote this letter, the letter to the churches of Galatians, after hearing that they had been led astray by false teachers who were claiming that faith alone in Jesus was not enough to be justified. So Paul's message was, uh, by the works of the law, no one is justified. It's only by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, for the glory of God alone. But false teachers were coming in behind him saying, well, uh, Paul missed a couple things, and you have, to, you have to observe Jewish ceremonial laws. If you're a male, you've got to be circumcised. Uh, you've got to obey the food laws, essentially saying that faith in the gospel was not enough. And this, uh, this got to Paul, this stirred him to write this letter, and he writes the letter of Galatians to set the record straight. He, he writes, if the, these teachers, these false teachers, really knew the scriptures, the Jewish law, they would know that by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Relying on the law is, in fact, being under a curse. He builds out this point all the way through the first uh, four chapters about uh, salvation and righteousness has always been by faith alone, all the way back to Abraham, the man of faith. And then he starts to apply this, this teaching, this gospel message in, in chapter 5. Last week, we covered Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, where Paul commands the Galatians, now that you have been set free, you're no longer slaves under the condemnation of the curse or under sin. Uh, stand firm in your freedom. Don't go back to slavery. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery again. He's saying, in Christ, you are freed from having to justify yourself or make yourself good enough. You don't have to make yourself acceptable enough before God. You're freed from this crushing, futile attempt to earn your own acceptance with God. So circumcision doesn't matter. Ceremonial law doesn't matter. He says what matters most is faith working through love. And as this faith works through love, Paul teaches the Galatians that they were to use their freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, but to serve one another. I think he says this because apart from being freed from the law and freed from sin, you can't truly love others or serve them. 
You're enslaved to yourself, and ultimately everything in your life is self-serving. But in the gospel, you're freed to give yourself. You're freed to uh, not relapse into slavery or use your freedom as a license for the flesh. So along those lines, what we see in verses 16 through 25 is Paul building out upon this teaching. And I think he's teaching us that if we are to stay in this freedom, this acceptance, this righteousness by faith, it is only made possible as we live by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who keeps us in this freedom. The the Spirit is the one who makes this possible. The Spirit is the one who causes us not to use the freedom that we have now in Christ as an opportunity to the flesh, and the Spirit is the one who calls us back out of bondage to slavery again. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. You guys with me? Yeah. All right, getting some nods. Haven't lost you. Um, well, if you have a handout, as you should have gotten one, uh, hopefully we didn't run out on your way in this morning as the greeters were handing out handouts. You see on there that there's five questions um, under that sermon title. And as a way of framing our sermons and in an effort to equip uh, the church as students of God's word and growing in the gospel, we've been using these five questions as a tool. Uh, and, and a way to answer and look at what the text says. So these questions will help us look at what the text says, what does the text mean, how in our natural, natural selves do we resist the truth, how has Jesus accomplished the truth, since we believe that Jesus is the hero of the Bible and we're not. Uh, Jesus is the one who uh, deserves the glory, not humans or ourselves. And, and Jesus' accomplishment is what empowers us for obedience. Therefore, it is taking what is what Christ has accomplished and seeking to apply that, and that's how we begin to grow and change. Otherwise, the motivational structure that we're trying to get at is fear our pride, and we want it to be out of gospel love and joy in God. So let's look at what what does the text say. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So Paul says, how do you use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity How do you not use your freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh? You seek to live by the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit. And and walking in the Bible refers to the the habits, the pattern, the behavior, or the conduct of someone's life. So it it means to live or behave in a certain manner. So you can think about it like this, as other translations might say, let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Be directed by the Spirit. The Amplified Bible says, walk habitually in the Holy Spirit. Seek Him and be responsive to his guidance. And Paul says, if we do this, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He lays it out kind of black and white in a clear manner for us. He doesn't say, if you live by the Spirit, you may have the opportunity not to gratify the flesh. It's an option. Spirit gives us some options. He says, if you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul continues in verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul introduces to us here the idea of a battle, a conflict between the spirit and the flesh. And Paul has previously described in the letter of Galatians that at the moment of salvation, when someone places their faith in the person and work of Jesus, they are declared righteous, perfect, justified. But as described earlier in the letter in Galatians 3, verses 1 through 7, the Galatians had begun by faith, but they were seeking to grow or be perfected 
by the flesh. And what this shows us and teaches us is the flesh is that which tries to grow apart from the spirit. It's that selfishness, that self-dependence that is in opposition to the spirit. Yes, when we believe in Jesus and we are made right with him, we are declared perfect and made right in his sight, but we are still in this body of sin, of flesh, that is not going to be done away with until Jesus comes back or we are resurrected in our glorified body. So in the meantime, we live in this tension, this battle, this, this fight between the spirit and the flesh, serving others and living for others and living for self, self-centeredness or complete dependence upon God. And notice what Paul says in verses 16 and 17. It says, the flesh has desires. And those desires are fighting against the desires of the spirit so that whatever godly and good things you want to do, you don't always do them. So even when we become a believer and a Christian and the spirit lives inside of us, we want to follow God, but the flesh prevents us, fights against us. Paul is teaching here that deep down, even in the midst of failure and struggle, that a true Christian is not simply someone who regurgitates information or has, is able to say a prayer or knows doctrine, but ultimately deep down wants to obey God, wants to follow God, wants to become like Christ. At the core, that is what a Christian is. And he says, if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. So living by the Spirit not only keeps us out of the flesh, but it keeps us out of what Paul described earlier in Galatians 5.1 of going back to bondage, going under the law. Does that make sense? No longer flesh or law. When you are led and guided and directed by the Spirit, you are not under the obligation of the law of Moses. Because being led and directed by the Spirit shows, as the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel look forward to, that the Holy Spirit has come inside you and the very Spirit of God causes you to obey Him. You have a new heart that wants to follow him. So in this way, the presence of the Spirit's activity in your life shows that you are no longer under the old covenant system. You're no no longer under the law of Moses. And then Paul continues in verses 19 to 23, describing the evidences or the outworkings of these two forces, these two natures, the flesh and the Spirit. He says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Although what he's talking about here are spiritual realities, they're invisible. We can't see with our eyes this conflict that's going on. You can tell by the way someone lives. The, the fruit shows the root. It says the works of the flesh are evident. Other translations say it like this. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the practices are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And he doesn't stop there. I don't think this is an exhaustive list because what does he say at the end? And things like these. That's Paul's way of using a junk drawer term. Everything else bad. Works of the flesh. And as I was thinking about this week, I think you can boil these, all of these down to, uh, with idolatry and sorcery, trying to use God for your benefit. Idolatry is trying to create a counterfeit God or a false substitute for God. And sorcery is trying to create counterfeit works of God. So you're trying to use God. 
and the others are demonstrations of using people and substances. But what's at the root of both of them is self. Self-seeking, self-serving ways. Not seeking the best and good of others, but seeking the best and good of self at the expense of God or others. And he says in verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now in my Bible, there's a little note by the word do that states a little footnote at the bottom that says, or to make a practice of doing. And that's because this word in the original language can, can either mean do or make a practice of doing. This is why some translations will translate this verse like those who live like this are those who practice such things. So what Paul is saying here is a life marked by the works of the flesh means that a person has not been transformed by the gospel. They don't have the spirit in them making them new and sanctifying them and growing them to become more like Jesus. We shouldn't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Like if you have a fit of anger that you're expelled from the kingdom, you're gone. But he's saying that if you are marked by fits of anger, it is a demonstration that you have not truly placed your faith in the gospel, that the Spirit has not made you a new creation, and you are not being transformed to look more like Jesus. Does that make sense? Then Paul contrasts the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. And, and notice that Paul doesn't say works of the Spirit or fruits of the Spirit. He says fruit. Meaning, you don't pick and choose. All of these grow together. And it's, it's not an exhaustive list. It's something that's it's really becoming more like Christ, looking more like God, walking more like God. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Again, the comment about not being under law or not being uh, against such things, there is no law. And this does not come out of seeking self-centeredness or self-serving, being using God or using others. It comes from being served by God and loved by God and loving others and serving others. What Paul's making is a point here that you'll be able to tell what's going on at the deeper level, the heart level, the level of the desires by the outward manifestations of that person, the characteristics of that person, that person's behavior and actions and habits and conducts. Because when someone walks by the Spirit, they walk by the power of God, they will look like God. They will look like Jesus. They will bear the fruits, the traits of the Spirit. Now, I lived in Louisiana for a couple years. I had a 25 by 50 foot garden, and uh, I, I loved wearing overalls and getting in the garden and borrowing a, a tractor from a church member and getting in there with a tiller. But I'm not an expert gardener. Yeah. <laughs> Although I did grow some good watermelons. Those were, those were good. I can't really tell you a whole lot about farming or how to plant a tree. But I can tell you, by looking at the fruit of a tree, what kind of tree that is. So, if a tree has oranges on it, by deductive reasoning, I can tell you that's an orange tree. Right? It's not going to be an apple tree. It doesn't work like that. 
And, and this is the vivid illustration that Paul is using. You can tell the true nature of the tree by the fruit that's being produced. An apple tree does not produce oranges. An orange tree does not produce walnuts. So the fruit demonstrates the true nature of something. The fruit demonstrates the root. And the section is wrapped up as Paul describes that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh is inclinations and cravings, its propensity and its appetites have been crucified. Then he ends, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So now let's look at that second question in our handout. What does the text mean? Provide a summary statement. I would say that those in Christ, those who are called to freedom, a freedom that is to be used through love to serve one another, are in a constant, continual fight with the flesh that they have crucified with his passion and desires, and they are to live following the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit. So the the Christian is to be intentional and active and purposeful in killing the flesh and depending and trusting on the Spirit. I think it means those two things. Number one, that there is a battle. There is a a spirit-fighting flesh, flesh flesh-fighting spirit. The desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the spirit. And secondly, the Christian must be active and purposeful and intentional in fighting it. So let's look at that first one. We are to be uh, mindful of the fight and killing sin. If you've been journeying with us through the book of Galatians, you might think that uh, this verse in chapter 5, verse 24, that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with his passion and desires, sounds very similar to what Paul said earlier in Galatians 2.20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. But if we look carefully at, at the wording of this verb, we see that they are different. Because notice in Galatians 5.14 that this crucifixion is not something that's done to us, It's something that's done by us. We are the ones who crucify the flesh. One commentator said it like this. The verb used here is not the passive voice, as used in Galatians 2.20. The verb is in the active voice. It points rather to what the believer has himself done and must continue to regard as being done. The proper term to describe this act is repentance. Thus, the believer in Christ has already repented of his former way of life to the degree of actually executing the old nature. This does not mean that the battle is thereby over forever, as in an actual crucifixion, life lingers even though the criminal has been nailed to the cross. Nevertheless, the believer is to regard the decisive act as having been done. He is not to seek to remove from the cross what has been nailed there. Now, that's a lot. That was a big, a long quote. But simply stated, Christians are not those who simply see their sin and pick up their cross and drag it around. They are those who crucify it to the cross and watch it die. As vivid as that, it, that sounds. And, and, and this would have been a graphic illustration for uh, the first century hearers in the, in the Roman days. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst criminals. It was an awful, utterly humiliating way to die. It wasn't for those who deserved the courtesy of a quick beheading or death. It was a long, drawn-out process of suffocation and intense pain, and it always resulted in death. 
So what Paul is saying is the rejection of our old nature is to be decisive. And although crucifixion was a lingering death, it was a certain death. People who were nailed to crosses didn't survive. They died. So true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh. While here below, they have to fix it to the cross and they have to be determined to keep it there till it expires. Does that make sense? There's an active intentional process in killing the flesh and this is how we battle. It's not a a quick fix. There's not a three-step program for instant sanctification and holiness. There's not an app you can down called Insta Sanctify. (laughs) That was pretty bad, I'm sorry. (laughs) It is the process of intentionally rendering yourself dead to sin, confessing sin and repenting of sin, looking at sin with such contempt and hate, not treating it with any courtesy that you don't want to take it down. It's so bad and horrible, it doesn't deserve anything better than death on a cross. So every day we want to renew and refresh, remind ourselves of this reality. Hate sin, kill it, get rid of it. So I think this means that a true Christian is not only marked by the the freedom of the Spirit, but they're marked by a hatred of sin and a desire to get rid of it. So we don't want to just look at this passage and say, well, fruit of the Spirit, got about 7 out of 10, doing pretty good. We want to examine our hearts. Do we regularly confess sin, repent of sin? That is just as much of a marker as the Holy Spirit working in us and the outward demonstration of the fruit. Secondly, we want to depend upon the Holy Spirit. We not only want to uh, consider ourselves crucified to the flesh and leave it there on the cross, we want to depend upon the Holy Spirit and walk in his ways. The word walk that is used here uh, is, is a word that's used to describe shepherds leading their sheep or farmer leading their cattle. We are the ones who are to be following the Spirit's leading. Notice what Paul doesn't say. Since you have been made alive by the Spirit... You have life by the Spirit. Kick up your feet. Sit back and relax. You don't have any part to play. Take an easy-go-lucky mentality in this life. You're already freed. You're made righteous. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The word really means... uh, fall in line, walk in line with the Spirit. So the Spirit is not only uh, our guide, but He is our path. He's calling us to crucify the flesh, to live by trusting in Him and not in ourselves, and be disciplined in turning to the things of the Spirit. This means we must use God-ordained means to keep in step with the Spirit, the Spirit-inspired Word of God saturating ourselves in God's word, continually and praying at all times in the spirit, surrounding ourselves with people who are indwelled by the spirit. I don't think it's a coincidence that the people I've seen in the church grow the most, bear the fruit of the spirit, grow in their understanding and applying of becoming like Jesus. They're committed to the church. They're committed to one another. And I'm convinced that, that you can't grow in bearing fruit of the Spirit in isolation. 
the, the fruit of the Spirit is intended to be utilized outward, serving others. And I don't think the same Holy Spirit in me is going to tell the same Holy Spirit in you, keep your distance, don't have anything to do with them, we don't need them. The Spirit that has given me gifts to encourage and uplift the body is going to cause me to want to be with the church. Amen? Those who walk by the Spirit want to use their gifts that the Spirit has given them to serve one another. So this is what the text means, that there is a battle, and that we have to be intentional in killing sin, in living by the Spirit, and actively pursuing the Spirit. Let's look at how we might resist this. We don't want to make much of ourselves. Let's look at how we naturally resist this reality. I think just as therefore we are to crucify the flesh that we are to set ourselves to follow what we know to be right, we are to reject one path and follow another, we can somehow get a little disproportionate in this and forget to do one or the other. So we don't crucify the flesh or battle the flesh. And I think as postmodern Americans, we can naturally resist a passage like this by not liking how absolute and clear Paul is. Really, Paul? Is it only spirit and flesh? What about spirit? Or splesh? Is there a gray area? Uh, What if I want to follow the Spirit and then I want to keep this sin that I really like and just kind of cuddle with it, keep it around? You know, come off the cross, you. Come here. I can't do both. Relax, Paul. Can't we forget the reality of this battle? I'm so prone to do this prone to live in my natural state of pride and independence and self-seeking needs. And in my pride, I I often function and think as if I don't need the Spirit, that I can grow apart from the Spirit. Therefore, I'm not really that desperate in prayer. I'm not really seeking to be renewed and taught by Him in the Word of God. I think I'm doing pretty well. I've got five out of nine. I fall into laziness. I don't think we should be mis- led or, or deceived that, that this passage is taking some sort of passive sitting by and being unaware of the callousness and the fight and the danger of leaving sin around. Sin can so quickly deaden our desires for God, we slip away into the comforts of our own needs, and we actually believe then that the things of this world and our flesh are actually better than the Spirit better than God. We can be deceived that we can actually live and grow as Christians apart from regular fellowship with the church and regular reading of God's word and meditating on his scriptures. Instead of crucifying our sin, we don't watch it die, we we take it off and we take care of it. But even as we examine how quickly we can neglect this battle, and how quickly we can become lackadaisical and not intentional in our fighting of sin, I think it's helpful to continually remind ourselves of Jesus. This is, this is I think, the, the joy and the, the, the great part of preaching is making much of Jesus and setting our hearts before his glory so that we are changed. 
Because even in the midst of our failures, turning from the spirit back to flesh, back to legalism, or back to uh, license to sin, we have a hope and we have a comfort and we have a king who not only showed us what perfection is like, but gave us his own life to empower us. He bore the fruit of the spirit perfectly. Jesus was led by the spirit and he never gratified the desires of the flesh. He was tempted, but he never failed. He never fell into pride or into self-centeredness. He didn't even count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He, even though he existed in the form of God, he didn't, didn't take this equality as something to be exploited. He took the form of a servant, became obedient even to the point of death, and was crucified on the cross in our place, taking the just punishment for all our evil and vile acts, our works of the flesh, so that we are freed we're freed from the curse of the law. We're freed from, from perfectly filling the law because Jesus has done it in our place. Jesus has freed us from the curse and condemnation of sin so that we can stand before God free of wrath and sin and condemnation and have no fear of rejection or condemnation. Jesus experienced hate so that we could experience love. Jesus took God's wrath so that we could receive God's kindness. Jesus showed us how deadly and wicked and evil our flesh really is because he had to be crucified on a cross for it. Jesus' crucifixion empowers us to crucify sin. This is where we start to begin looking at question five. How does this reality empower us? Jesus empowers us to obey. Because the more, I think, we realize and experience how costly our sin was to Jesus Christ, the more we will seek to kill our own sin. And the more we experience the benefits of Christ's crucifixions, the realities of total dependence upon God and Him giving His life for us and the freedom and benefits of His death, we will die to ourselves and seek to live for the benefit and good of others. Remember how Will described last week that what serving one another means, that through love we are to seek and serve the best for one another. The more we realize and experience how much Jesus has served us, how he has given us his best, as he has sought out our best, the more I believe we are empowered to serve others out of his serving us. Right? Right? You ever just try to take one of these, uh, these characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit and just try to grow in them in your own strength? Maybe you're not really a patient person or a joyful person, so you do something like this. Be more patient! <laughs> you try to give yourself like a motivational pep talk. Patient, 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 patient. Listen to a song about patience. You listen to a nice... Uh, music and, and deep voice to soothe yourself. I don't think it works that way. It hasn't worked for me. We grow in these as we consider how we have received them from Christ. For example, I'm not going to grow in patience by trying hard to be patient. I'm going to grow in patience as I realize and think on and reflect by the Spirit how patient God has been with me. 
And I'm going to use my, my own outworkings of the flesh at times when I snap at my kids or at my wife as an opportunity to confess and repent in that moment. Father, this is unsanctified self. This is not who you have made me to be. This was the self that was crucified. Help me to consider it really crucified. Help me to reflect and think upon how patient and loving you have been with me so that I can be patient with others. Otherwise, what's the real motivation for our, for our change and our growth? Pride? You think we can do it on ourselves? Isn't that exactly the opposite of what Paul says in here of trying to live by the flesh? The same thing that got him in this predicament? At the root of the fruit of the Spirit is a continual repentance and faith in Jesus. Therefore, if we want to grow in the fruit of the Spirit, we grow in applying Christ and Him crucified, considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ in every aspect of our life to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. We've got to take the gospel to the root. We've got to take the message of Christ crucified to the root. So at the root of the fruit of the Spirit is no longer a self-centered heart, but a heart that has been set free by Jesus, a heart that has experienced the self-giving love of Jesus and is no longer enslaved to use others or be used by others, but to receive love. And as they receive all the love they need, therefore they can overflow and reflect the love that they have received. They are empowered by Jesus' love to serve others in the Spirit. So, my friends, let us not become calloused. Let us be mindful and alert. The reality of this battle that's within, the war that's within, the flesh and the Spirit. Let's not become callous and lazy with sin. Let's not cuddle with it. Let's cuddle with Jesus and the Spirit. Let's cuddle with one another and get close to one another. Let's seek to kill sin and crucify sin and keep it on the cross. And let's not ever believe that we can somehow move on from the Spirit, that we can trust in ourselves and boast in ourselves and in our own efforts. Let us become dependent and seek to continually surrender to the Spirit's leading. Because if we forget this, that we are completely dependent upon Christ and upon His grace, that we will start to boast in ourselves, we will start to depend on our flesh, and we will become more and more comfortable in a way that leads to death. Let us be mindful and alert, active and intentional, diligent in battling our selfishness with the Spirit, and let us examine our lives deeply. Let us ask our community to reflect and help us to look at our fruit and seek to apply the truths of the gospel to the root, to help us kill sin together and to grow like Christ. This is where I, I want to go. This is, what I, this is what I want. I hope you guys want it as well, that we grow as a church together in this. Amen? If you have any questions on anything that I said, I would love to talk with you afterwards. Uh, I don't know if I could answer it. I feel like I just kind of talked and rambled for a long time. Uh, but if you have any questions, I would love to talk with you about, about practically how we can uh, apply this more deeply to particular situations. Uh, if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, you have questions or you're skeptical about how you can uh, take those steps to follow him, I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Uh, and 
uh, I wanted to, to thank all of you uh, and, and this church for being a church that encourages me, that shows me that God is at work, and that His Spirit is bearing fruit in this church. It is a great joy and privilege uh, to lead and to serve in this church. Uh, so I love you guys, and I love the church that God is forming here. Let's pray.